0: This is the third talk on Habakkuk that I've given. The first talk was looking at Habakkuk as a whole and some of its literary features, uh, in particular, the uh, journey, the inner journey that he went on from doubt to faith. And the fact that this makes the book of Habakkuk quite unique, It's, it's an insight into the prophetic mind. The second talk focused on chapter three, and it opened up the topic of an alternative paradigm to penal substitution. And that's because Habakkuk chapter three uh, seems to lift to a higher level and, and, and transcends cause and effect retribution with a picture that is drawn extensively from the Exodus. And that picture is God's intervention in earthly affairs to achieve victory. Uh, and what I introduced in talk two was the idea, that, that, oh, the controversy over penal substitution. The controversies over the word penal rather than substitution. In, in other words, Christ was sacrificed to appease the wrath of the Father. And uh, talked about the growing unease a lot of Christians have with that. What I introduced was the idea of paradigms and perspectives that, well, let's just put penal substitutionary atonement for the moment um, in a bit of a box there. And let's look at alternative uh, analogies or metaphors through which the scriptures themselves look at uh, substitution and redemption. and, And that talk opened up the Crystals Victor model, which I combined with the Exodus model, and we went through the text um, of the book looking at through that lens. This is a big topic, so talk three really now takes this alternative metaphor of the Exodus and the alternative metaphor of Crystals Victor, which I, I combine, and goes into them in some detail, and I compare and contrast the uh, connotations around penal substitution versus the connotations around the Exodus model, and they are significantly different um, in what they emphasise. Well, um, tonight... Uh, let me just first of all get my notes up so I don't get entirely lost. I forgot to bring the printed version, yeah. I forget something <laughs> um, so we began doing Habakkuk and uh, as I foreshadowed the third chapter of Habakkuk is it's quite famous the hymn of Habakkuk it's almost mystical like he's either on LSD or um, it's uh, its it's one of these it reminds me of some of the the later paintings of someone like Turner when you look at it you're not sure whether it's heaven or earth he's painting um, and uh, the, the third chapter of Habakkuk is like that its imagery is transcendent Transcendent. Um, anyway uh, it's certainly a picture of redemption a picture of salvation and that led us to last week talking about the issue of um, Penal substitution, and um, we're going to have a look at that more next year. I've made the point last time; it's quite controversial, uh, becoming more so because of the image of God it seems to imply. And um, I was first led into this by Andrew, who um, educated me about it, I suppose. And 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 uh, next year we'll do we'll do more looking at it. But the, um, the proposal I was putting forward last time was uh, the idea of um, a multi-perspectival view and the idea that penal substitution is a metaphor. Now, as a, somebody versed in literature as my training, I'm extremely attracted to the idea that actually all language is a metaphor. I won't go into that now because I'd be talking about it all night. I believe that entirely. Uh, it was first put forward by a guy called George Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F, in a book called Metaphors We Live By. And he's really making a point that to me seems obvious that uh, all language is a metaphor of reality. It's not reality. It's hard for people to get their heads around that. He, he, he takes an example in that book, for instance, um, of what he thinks is the apparently least metaphorical language we have, which are prepositions to, around, across, over. He said, well, they're actually, they're all topographical metaphors, if you think about it, that he's imagining, you know, little minds. I want to get this point across to you. How do we move around this? And um, even something apparently as bland as prepositions are metaphorical. So with that in mind, um, we talked about the fact that whatever we say, penal substitution or penal substitutionary atonement, which I found... Um, Lisa, I think you recommended to me the uh, now and not yet videos as psa i didn 't know it like it 's it's up there if it 's a three letter acronym <laughs> anyway it 's a metaphor, and um, what I talked about last week was introduce the idea of this alternative metaphor, um, and I think there are others, but it 's an alternative metaphor of it 's called Christus Victor. Um, Was a metaphor of the conquest of armies, and that was the metaphor that dominated the patristics, particularly the Eastern. Most of the patristics are Eastern, in other words, they're Turkey, they're not actually Western, uh, which meant they read Greek, not Latin. Um, And uh, clearly, uh, Habakkuk 3 seems to introduce that metaphor. We talked about that, and I talked about the language of Habakkuk 3. Now I want to kind of really try and look at it because I'm, I don't know if, I haven't really read anyone explicitly doing this. If not, I think it's needs to be done, which is combining the metaphor of the Exodus with Christus victor. Um, I made the point that quite, quite clearly in the, in the Old Testament scriptures, the predominant metaphor of God's intervention salvation is the exodus. I don't think any of us would need persuading about that and that's what we have here in Habakkuk. He's clearly alluding to the exodus. Um, The metaphor of the exodus or narrative of the exodus as an analogy of salvation could go either way. You could push it into penal substitution but only if you just focus on the Passover which is a subset of a broader narrative. If you want to talk about the broader narrative, you'll probably go down into the Christus Victor one. Um, And combining the Exodus narrative with Christus Victor is what I'm going to do tonight. So that having been said, um, I just want to recall how metaphors work. Um, The best analogy I have is metaphors work like throwing a stone in a pond which ripples out. It works by association. Um, in other words, it, it tends to link um, visual connections in our mind with one another extremely fast. And um, what that means is that any metaphor, particularly a big metaphor, has a conceptual landscape it's part of. It's not just one connection, it's actually a, it's actually a, um, a system of connections. Um, Now, uh, and clearly penal substitution has a system of connections around judicial systems. All sorts of things flow out of that. Um, I won't go into this part of it, but um, a great rhetorician, um, uh, so great I've forgotten his name, (coughs) Mr. Mr. Rhetoric of Rhetoric, Chicago University. Hmm? Wayne Booth, thank you. Wayne Booth um, makes the point that metaphors reveal character. Depending on the metaphors you use, uh, that from a literary point of view, it shows your character. Uh, that's I think that's true. So we're getting to a use of language that isn't just evocative, but is revealing of of your character and personality. But well, the way a metaphor works. Um, which you'll need to bear in mind tonight, is metaphors need readers. They're like a puzzle. Um, Metaphor is Trinitarian, so you could get why I think it's mystically comprehensive. A a metaphor says this is like that. This is like that. But when I say this is like that, I'm saying that to an audience, and it's a puzzle, because this does not equal that. It's just like that, and you have to work out how, and when you work out how, it's called the third way. So it's a Trinitarian model, but it's up to the audience. So when Jesus says, he uses metaphor all the time. So parables are metaphors. When he says to his disciples, the kingdom of God is like, you know, a farmer going out to sow seed. Well, they know the kingdom of God. That is like this agriculture. Now you work out what that means. Because clearly, I'm not saying the kingdom of God equals agriculture. And it's those particular features that the metaphor is shining a light on that the audience have to work out. Does that make sense? So it's a very generative model. Why do you say metaphor? simile? Well, let's just say there's a very broad class of language called tropes, which might be the meta class. Trope was the Greek word, and there are subsets within it. So a simile, I actually use, in a simile, I would, I would use the word like, that the kingdom of God is like. In a metaphor, I just drop like and I say the kingdom of God is a man going out. to So, so it, metaphor seems bolder conceptually, um, but they're in the same class. The word trope is really useful to bear in mind it mean, because trope means to turn. What metaphors do is they turn your mind. So in my innovation work, I use, have used metaphor all my life to turn my mind around. Um, Aristotle talked about that. It's probably arguably the heart of creativity is metaphorical thinking versus literal thinking. Um, you know, if we were contrasting language, um, legal language, engineering language, is based upon a view that the language is denotative. Precisely, it denotes it. This is what I mean, I don't mean anything else. Metaphor is connotative, which is the pebble in the pond. This could mean a lot of things, and I want to start you thinking about them rather than closing you down. Correct. Yes, yeah, so if you take that philosophy of reading I just talked about, I'll just repeat for the tape that this comment was, in our minds as readers, the Holy Spirit is working. So I won't go too far into this, but it's really, really interesting. <laughs> your, your, what your comment G- goes in the patristics. They did not have an archival view of Scripture. Uh, Whereas modern evangelical fundamentalism and a lot of it has an archival view called historical, which is back then it meant something. What did Paul mean when he wrote that? Um, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, really all of them didn't think that was the case because Paul's dead, we're here. Um, The Holy Spirit's working in our mind and it's a living text speaking to us today. So that sort of puts a big responsibility on us as to ha- this reading is a living revelation and, and their theology was pretty watertight over this which is the Holy Spirit's here now and God's alive <laughs> so, so this m- metaphor of reading where we participate becomes very important yeah, it's cool anyway um, that having been said with that introduction um, let's have a look at just recall the conceptual field of penal substitution. Okay, so um, here we go. I hope the technology works. If it doesn't, for those listening, I'm just putting up we've got a blank screen. though? it might wake up. There you go. So I just did what's called a spider diagram, which is the technique I've used for 30 years of my life to map More the mess of that. my mind. Hmm? More than that. More than that. <laughs> um, so you put the word in the middle penal substitution and you just let it go out and um, now I mean if, if this were interactive it'd be a lot, we could do with this with a, a lot of fun together but um, since we've got to get somewhere tonight. I'm not saying this is the right way but I'm saying it's an, it, these will be key fe- features and um, uh, it's clearly a world where guilt is the problem, that's the issue in a criminal case. And the model I have there is there's a judge and there's an accused who's a potential criminal. And and what the judge is deciding is a criminal code which may or may not be broken. Um, and if it is broken, there's punishment. You know, So those to me, this is part of the system of connections that come in our mind. All this stuff starts to come in. Um, There is an implicit antagonism in this, and you can't get away from it. It's between the judge and the criminal. That's the kind of dramatic antagonism between them. Uh, The the idea of um, a penal code, I won't go into this in detail, but I've got, there I just said, this is problematic. It's problematic because it's undefined. And for the modern young Christian, that means all sorts of behavioural stereotypes can walk in that door, like what exactly is sin um, and so on. Um, and the enormous problems that this involves on the code between you can stretch out to total depravity where everything I do is wrong and that leaves me with no common sense view. Surely there's a difference between you know, Mother Teresa and Hitler or Whatever I mean uh, it, it just gets into an absolute tangle, but nonetheless that's that's uh that's some of the connotations does that sort of capture a penal okay, so no need to keep going there hmm? this one that's sentence, so um the outcome is. Obviously, a sentence or not a sentence, um, and then this is the antagonism implicit in there between a judge and a criminal. That's that's the that's the antagonism. What's, what's the one that's, is after this is the penal code. It implies a penal code, and, and the problem is that in moral terms, this gets extremely problematic. I mean, you know, I've got on the right hand side. A Calvinistic view of total depravity, where absolutely everything I do is wrong by definition. I can't even want to do the right thing, because my will is perverted. I mean, Augustine and Calvin were very strong about that. If I had a, if I had a good will, that would be righteousness. So, so that's the extreme. And I just watch. I just sit in sermons and watch poor old kind of evangel- evangelical preachers get totally lost between telling the congregation everything they do is wrong and then some more common sense view that well no, some things I do are better than others like you know, I mean murder is not the same as me kissing my wife, I mean surely there's a difference <laughs> um, and but, but then down here I've got this issue of what I would call behavioural stereotypes which I think some of us might have had more exposure to that but there's just an implicit Behavioural stereotype like giving money and how much money you give, uh, or that's an example. It just creeps its way into tons of sermons I've heard. It's just like um, and and so on. So it's a it's a mess. Even the prayer book takes takes us back to pre-salvation and we sort of yeah. start from scratch again. Correct. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the most unanswered prayer in human history is the confession. Like, you know, every Sunday, I do, uh, well, I don't say it because I think it's doctrinally wrong, but you know, sorry for all, everything I've done, nothing I've done is good, please help me to be good. And uh, I know next Sunday, I'm gonna pray this prayer again. <laughs> anyway, so that's that one. Let's have a look now at this other model. And let's say, what, what does this Christus Victor or Exodus model? Let's put that in and see what we get. Um, and, um, what we get is extremely different. Um, so, so I'm asking now, With this is a metaphor of salvation. What does it imply? Well, um, the first thing it implies is that the problem is not guilt. It is bondage and slavery. That's the problem. That was the problem of Egypt, bondage and slavery. That's. Um, And then the second pretty obvious thing is that it is not a legal antagonism, it is a contest. This is all about a a huge cosmic conflict. It's an arm wrestle of might and power. Um, The the next thing that we would see is this is uh, very, very important. The antagonist is Pharaoh. And the antagonism is between Pharaoh and his cohorts and Moses and Yahweh. This is a very different antagonism being charted. Uh, the, so the, the, there we have Pharaoh who will become, very quickly in the analogy, the agent of the devil and the principalities and powers who are hostile to God. And Moses, who is almost a Christ figure, but nonetheless, he's God's person in the situation. And the people are the hapless victims. They are not actually guilty. They're hapless victims. They're slaves of a big, big system that they can do nothing to get out of. Then the other thing that's pretty, pretty obvious um, is this one here, it is not about an individual. I didn't make that point, but the penal substitution model is very individual, it's one person and a judge. This is not one person, this is a community, this is a nation, Um, and and they're the ones who are at risk. Uh, Now, the other thing that's really interesting is the outcome here on the right, which is um, very different. In the penal substitution model, the outcome is kind of neutral. I mean, if I get arraigned on a charge and get pronounced innocent, I just go back to life as I was before. Like, there's no particular vision in that. I just got out of jail. This is very different. The outcome here is um, pretty positive. It's actually um, it's a new land. It's a new society that's free to serve Yahweh. It's, it's a very, very light on a hill outcome. It's not just uh, we're back in Egypt with no problems. It's not like we go back in Egypt, we're not slaves anymore. It's, it's a very transformational outcome. Uh, this is another big one down here, which I call the redemptive engine. There's a, there's a kind of an operating model. The um, redemptive engine, the word energia is a big, big word in, in the Bible always translated work, but um, particularly a guy called David Bradshaw. If you read much? David, Bra- David Bradshaw is very interesting. He's a patristic scholar, like a lot of them converted from evangelicalism, who was a PhD. I think David was in... He was certainly an electrical physicist. So electricity interested him, just technically. And he was drawn to this word energy. And now he's... He's a very significant theologian philosopher in East versus West. And particularly, you'll hear him talking about a big thing they talked about is the difference between energy and essence, both of which words are in the Greek. Essence is who I am. Energy is what I do. You know, I, I do something. Uh, so I won't go too far there. But none, yeah. You, you're going to take us back? To- Well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Um, I think I can imply it. Um, now, I haven't read that guy you mentioned, but I've certainly heard a talk which I will need to get out of the back of my mind. I mean, it's, Contra- it's exactly the same. Yeah, it's very similar. But it just goes back further. He, he, it's of that metaphor. Well, what, what I am going to finish with which I, at the end is this very interesting, and as a matter of fact, I think it's so significant, I thought I won't go. I'll just foreshadow this question uh, and might do another talk on it because I've got some pretty big ideas on it um, which are emerging quickly, which is, well, wh- what's the relation between creation metaphors and redemption metaphors? Um, so I'll come to that in a moment at the, toward the end. But anyway, th- th- this, this is an important point that the energy here, the, the energy at work here, is the destruction of Pharaoh's forces. It's a military conquest. You know, it's it's a wipeout. So that'll make sense. Can you see how differently that's a conceptual... The conceptual field is just completely different. It's not like either or, but it's just a t- totally different conceptual field. Now, that being the case, um, I thought we... L- Contrasting the two is very interesting. I mean, I think the contrasts are implicit. Let's make them explicit. Um, The I had this all all neatly laid out to do nicely, but it won't. I'll I'll see how this goes. Um, Firstly, there is no devil in in the penal substitution model. Might be on the edges, but he's not the centre. of it. He's not there. Whereas the devil is the primary antagonist in the Exodus model, quote Pharaoh. Um, Second point uh, in the first one, the antagonism is really God is on the antagonistic side. God as the judge versus the sinner as the accused. That's the implicit dramatic antagonism there. Um, The antagonism in Exodus model is Pharaoh and his cohorts versus Moses and Yahweh. It's extremely clear that's the antagonism, and it's extremely different. Um, The next one is the first problem is guilt. The problem in the Exodus model is bondage and slavery. To what? Well, we'll come to that, but you can begin to guess. the focus in the penal substitution model is the individual salvation. The focus in the second model is a community salvation, possibly of cosmic proportions. Um, the redemptive transformational energy in the first one is some kind of attribution of guilt, some you know, maneuvering of the attribution of guilt, whereas in the second one it's this huge conflict of powers. Um, and then Finally, the outcome. The first one is kind of back to normal. The second one is a new land, possibly a new creation. Um, So I think you can see the contrast between those two metaphorical systems. Just to get the point of that confession, it's not even back to normal. It's sort of a weekly back to normal. It's a weekly. It isn't even back to normal because it, it, it... Whereas with the exodus, Moses says you know. Images, the Egyptians that you see today, you'll see again. It again. Um, exactly. It is a complete, yeah, that's a really good point, Ron. That. there's one other one. Hmm? In the second one, they want to go back to normal. Yeah, they <laughs> do. <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> so um, yeah, just putting them together for those who didn't hear on the tape, Ron said in the second one, um, the enemy is absolutely obliterated because God says these Egyptians you see today you'll never see again however as you said Gordon they did want to go back which is a salutary um, cautionary point about the nature of growth in Christianity that no matter how big the promise is there is something in us we have to fight that's back to normal (laughs) Um, but it's really cool isn't it to put them together like that I I, I found it really uh, illuminating to do that And of course, the other point to make is this Exodus metaphor. We're not on fragile ground with this. Actually, the penal substitution one—we're on. It's not as if that's a very highly—it's implied for sure. But if you go back to the Old Testament scriptures, it's not even suggested. Whereas the Exodus motif in the Psalms—it's everywhere. The great, you know, your, your arm of salvation, we all know that it's a reference to to the exes. I haven't bothered to try to count them. Now, this is actually important. I'll just make a little allusion here to the side. I'm at the moment reading um, a guy called John. How do I pronounce it, my dear? Not there <laughs> Pretty good um, guy, uh, or we might try and interview him in gospel conversations, but anyway, um, he's a professor in the Orthodox in New York. Um, now, his big deal is the patristics. Um, and without trying to capture what he's saying, he translated one of the lesser-known works of Irenaeus, now, Irenaeus is 170 AD and why Irenaeus is so interesting apart from his brilliance to many people is that Irenaeus as you know was taught by Polycarp so when Polycarp was say 85 or 90 Irenaeus was 23, 24 and he's a mentor and Polycarp was taught by John the Apostle so we actually have in Irenaeus's letters you know recollections of conversations he had where he asked Polycarp and what did the Apostle tell you sort of thing mm-hmm. so this is pretty you know, spine tingly stuff now Irenaeus wrote a shortish book which John translates called On the Apostolic Preaching On the Apostolic Preaching it's very very significant for, apart from its brilliance it's quite short Um, because it is Irenaeus's summary of the gospel according to the apostolic preaching so given what we have just said he's summarizing the gospel now without going into too much detail about it although he alludes everywhere to the New Testament he doesn't use any New Testament scriptures they're all quote unquote Old Testament scriptures it's like uh, Stephen's uh, message in Acts 7. So it appears that even at 170 AD there was something about Israel's scriptures that was primary where they saw all the gospel there. How many Christians today could say, no, preach the gospel, just use the Old Testament. Um, That being the case, that being the case, the primacy of the exodus as a narrative of God's redemption, is I think confirmed. So we're not on sort of shallow ground. Well, with that in mind, um, let's just uh, let's just look at one of the many examples. And you're probably aware that David Bentley Hart is, you know, like a thunderbox on this one. Um, that this is that this was the primary model in the New Testament. But just to remind us of a Pretty obvious one this is Colossians um, it's David's translation but it's toward the end of chapter 2 you are those who are made full in him so as you read it just think of the Christus Victus model who is the head of every rule and power so the headship of Christ over vast demonic principalities and powers is what comes to his mind He gave you life, along with him, forgiving all your trespasses. So definitely forgiveness is in there. Expunging what is written by hand against us, contrary to us, in ordinances. And has removed it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now that is a really, really important set of phrases that I'll make a lot of in the rest of this talk. But just remember it stripping the archons and powers. He exposed them in the open, leading them prisoner along with him in triumphal procession. So this is a a Christus Victor, I smashed the archons and powers and now I'm the king. So It's a model of redemption, which certainly includes in it uh, forgiveness, it includes that, but it seems to be encased around a broader picture which is much closer to this exodus narrative now that's one of we could we could do other examples but that's to say well this isn't just as if it's an old testament thing and with this in mind what i want to do just for for the next bit of the talk is to actually go into the um the exodus metaphor now when i say metaphor of course once a metaphor gets extended, it really becomes what we might call an analogy. If we said, like, the Lord of the Rings is an analogy, you know, it was the narrative development across the landscape is all metaphorical, but it's all part of a system. And so if we said Exodus is a narrative, we know it didn't, wasn't a single event, it was a series of a... And how far back we stretch them to your point, Michael, do we go back to the garden or, you know, where do we begin it? But um, it, it certainly... Um, let's look at it as an analogy and let's... Um, spell out the, um, the the critical events um, so the depending where you start, depending where you start, the situation the problematic situation is bondage as we said it's bondage um, and that was the situation uh, for um, Israel. Uh, we would say in the, in the broader cosmic uh, picture of that, it is a picture of bondage of all the human race, not to pharaoh, but to principalities and powers. So there's a picture here that the earth is in bondage to demonic forces. That's, that's the picture. And it's a system of oppression and slavery. Uh, that um, the object is not an individual in view, but the nation of Israel. And depending on how generous you want to be, it could be all of humanity. But there's a a picture of um, systemic broad scale um, bondage of a whole nation. And Egypt, Egypt here is uh, the house of death. That's how I view it in this analogy. It is the house, you know the bondage is death. Egypt is the house of death. Uh, so it was a system of oppression. Um, it certainly included wrongdoing, but that was just a minor part of it. They were you know, commanded to build, make bricks and they weren't given resources to do it. It's, it's a system of people who were deprived, downtrodden and had no way out. And it's a picture um, you know, I, I think the picture of this being the house of death and us being in a system of corruption that condemns us to frustration is the macro picture that's being implied, implied here. Uh, and Pharaoh is the antagonist. Um, we know that all throughout the Old Testament these huge despotic kings were never seen. I mean, Daniel is, as we know, the archetype of this. They were never seen on their own. They were seen as... Vast demonic forces behind human power. You know, behind, you just can't explain Putin by psychology. There's vast devilish forces who seem, which is really scary, murderous. Unmercifully murderous. You know, as we, you know, watch SBS news every night and get depressed every night. But when you look at those pictures of civilian kindergartens and apartment buildings just decimated this is satanic joy it is manic and it's unrestrained and there's no mercy in it at all you get to kind of get that and you get that when you look at a pharaoh i mean if i think of a pharaoh it's this incredible arrogance of a human being who's become godlike and and is going to crush people mercilessly something that I find hard to put myself in those shoes, but you know, if I, that's just, I'm sure that in the right circumstances, who knows what could happen. So that's Pharaoh. Um, Now his cohorts include not just the army, but the priests. So it's it's sort of a battle with the priests. Uh, I think um, the critical issue, the critical word I'd like to put across this word, introduce it to us all here, which I think is a very key word to start joining things together, is ownership. Ownership. Slavery is ownership. I'm owned by somebody else. And that's a word to remember. And so we have a system of bad ownership of God's people. Um, and to your point, Michael, how far we stretch back. Now, we know that Israel, when we meet them with Moses, it was like four centuries prior to that that the promises came. And there's bondage and ownership following sin in the government, isn't there? There's bondage and ownership there. And so this idea that they were in a bad system of ownership, and the point about systems of ownership is important to bear this in mind. Um, because ownership is now, I suppose, now introducing a semi-legal word but in a different context. It's very, very real. You try getting out of an employment contract. You know, these these ordinances govern our lives. I mean, I can remember, without going into too much detail, because I wouldn't want to put it on tape, but when I had a certain amount of fairly large amount of money owing to me on the basis of an employment contract I was finishing up on, I got into a dispute with the owner who was slightly bigger than me. Um, I don't know, it probably about a half a million dollars was in play and I don't keep records. But fortunately, by God's grace, I found the email with the record that gave me an exception to the, what everyone else had. And that written letter, I mean, I had to have it. I had to have that written letter we are really governed by, quite rightly, but we're governed by ordinances. And in this particular one, they all add up to ownership. We're governed by systems and structures too. Correct. Um, which are, I interpret as part of this empire yes. in the Roman yes, world. Yes, yes. In the Roman world, the Roman Empire owned everybody. Hence, I, hope, I think I know what... Well, i see where you're going, but... Yeah, anyway. No, no I, th- I, th- I think, Heather, that... The, the, the word systems and structures is very, very important. The business system, the economic system, mm. and it's making us slaves yeah. to whatever it is. Or, or, or setting us free. I mean, they're good and bad ones. And, and I, think, I, I think that the fact that we're in systems means we're made in God's image and we're working in Trinitarian structures. We just are. We're not individual units. We're not molecules flying around. These are agreements that are structuring our lives every which way, I mean, marriage is one of them. And 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 so therefore, whether these agreements are wise or not wise is really important, because we're going to really see a picture of a new ownership system coming into play here. Um, and I think that um, it's for that reason that I think that a lot systems thinking would do, in a way what we're doing in looking at this is the, 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 the is introducing systems thinking. Like the Exodus model is more of a systemic model of sin, guilt, and corruption than an individual one. And I think that's... Well, I think it's that is... Yeah, yeah I, think, I think this is really a really important point, the, the order point. Um, you know that when I interview, interviewed John Walton, he... John feels that the paradigms of Genesis are order, disorder, and non-order. He was recently interviewed, John, by John Dixon on underceptions, on the flood. It's worth a listen, uh, because Anne and I listened. We knew what John Walton was going to say, um, but. What he said, essentially, what the highlight was that the flood is not best seen as, as punishment, but a reset to establish order. And, and so if you say systems matter, well then the, the, a beautiful system should be the outcome, a system with order as opposed to disorder, because systems can go either which way. Um, so we got this, this uh, so this, this is the system of corruption, bondage, and so on, which would include sin, but it goes beyond sin into drought, you know, into history. Um, or that's what was shaping the lives of these um, impoverished Jews back in this time. Uh, so, um, and I think, Michael, your point about going back to Genesis or even to Abraham and Isaac, these were not just any old people. They were people who had a promise that had got almost long forgotten. It was still there, but it was long forgotten. So the goal goal that Moses introduced to them was um, freedom. So so that was the goal. Freedom, but not just freedom for independence and autonomy. Free to serve God. That's incredibly important to have that in mind, that was the goal, free to serve God. Uh, So the next major phase then after we get the introduction of Moses, and I won't go into that now, I did mention I think last time a very good paper by George Athos from college on, he has a a very, I think, good and significant paper on the Exodus as a a narrative of cosmic redemption. um, Which expands some of these points. It doesn't actually take it where I'm taking it, but it's so very obvious where it's going. But, um, I'm probably a bit freer to take it where I'm taking it than he might be, being a lecturer at More College. But um, it's a very good paper. Um, and um, the, uh, Now what we get, and this is where the contest becomes, obviously, is the plagues. It is a complete... Um, arm wrestle of metaphysical powers. We know all about that. It's, it's with their witch doctors and it's existential. Um, and that contest of powers is something I suppose most of us don't have direct experience of, but Anne and I when we were younger, certainly with the Solomon Islands and um, Mr. Deck. Do you remember Norman Deck? Yes. Uh, who I knew he must have been ninety then, but uh, who would regard me with these incredible stories of really being confronted by witch doctors when the gospel was being brought to the Solomon Islands? It's 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 really his version of Moses versus uh, versus these guys. But it's it's very interesting because it's almost now we can begin to. It's over the forces and powers of nature, and um, it is very. Uh, Aligned to, I think, the miracles of Jesus. I mean, the miracles of Jesus and Moses' battle with the plague seem to me one and the same. And they're saying, I'm the God of nature. I'm I'm, I'm over disease. I'm over everything. Um, So uh, rather than viewing Jesus' miracles as merely signs of his divinity, they're actually signs of the contest for the control of the earth. And interestingly, not just control of sin, but control of vicissitudes and problems like disease and uh, storms and stuff, which are not attributable to sin. They're just part, however, of the chaos we have to live with. So um, a very systemic picture of, 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 of contest. Um, and then finally, you know, we know that that culminates with the Passover. Um, as the final final miracle but then the victory importantly isn't won there but it's actually won um, with the crossing of the reed sea now this particular crossing of the reed sea is the um, liberating point it's an enormously evocative picture of the death of death so um, Uh, um, where what happens is, as we know, the sea engulfs Pharaoh's forces. Um, And we see that the, the sea, which is a picture of chaos, and I think a picture here of death, becomes the death knell of the Egyptian forces. So I'm, I'm going to try and dig into this a little bit and then that'll move us toward the end. But as I'm doing it, there's another verse in the New Testament which I commend. I mean, I've, you've probably heard me say before, I really think Hebrews chapter 2 is one of you know, the most significant chapters in the Bible. Uh, but there's a verse in there that uh, I was, I don't know, a few months ago, because I, I know lots of it off by heart, suddenly this verse running around I thought, is that in the Bible is that in the Bible if I ask the question who has the power of death what's the answer no the devil Hebrews 2 says he destroyed him who had the power of death that is the devil that's what it says in Hebrews 2 very interesting that's what I thought because a bit like you Gordon I think yeah. right surely God's got no 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 it's, uh, so it's um uh, I might as well just be quite I mean I've quoted it precisely but it um I just don't think I've got to, thought I'd brought a, a bible with me but I I haven't anyway it's uh, toward, uh, toward the end of Hebrews 2 12 13 14. So Christ destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that we should no longer live in fear of death. It's quite interesting because Hebrews, of course, we know is a book built on the Jewish sacrificial system, but he doesn't talk about their expiation of sins. He talks about the breaking of the power of death that's keeping us in bondage. Um, so the um, what we see here is a picture of Pharaoh as manic. He seems to me to lo- become unhinged. He's so consumed by the jealousy of ownership he won't give them up, even though he's been defeated at every turn. And he pursues them with a obsessive focus, thinking if I kill them now, that's the end of them. Um, and it's... it's Murderous. I hate to say it, but it reminds me of a, these terrible, abusive husbands who want to control and are kill to control. That's, it reminds me of that manic, insane, murderous intent. Uh, and the waters of the Reed Sea, which had liberated the uh, Israelites, by, it then engulfed their enemies. And the Israelites... So this is the, this is the picture of a trap although this contest is a military contest it is won without lifting a spear it's not a battle between people often define military strategy is you know it's for their force fields but this force fields entirely other there's, there's there's no equalizing for you know god didn't come down with ten thousand chariots or anything like that it didn't He didn't give high marks. to them, he didn't know. And it's an an ambush by God. It's just a clever, clever ambush. Um, And the waters symbolise death and Hades, which is the land that Christ entered. And Christ was the lure who enticed the demonic forces into death and Hades. And he then... uh, Offering by by offering himself as the prize they thought they could capture. So let's just kind of go with that a little bit now. In order to uh, help you know, I'm not (laughs) the only one who thought of this. uh, Whoops, a daisy. What's that? This is a very famous, exactly the same. Motif, Sermon by Gregory of Nyssa. It's a famous fishhook analogy. It's short, but you've got to hang on to this one. In order to secure that the ransom in our behalf might be easily accepted by him who required it, that's the devil. The deity was hidden under the veil of nature, uh, i sorry, under the veil of our nature, that so as with the ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh. And th- so he has this image of Christ being a bait offered, um, clothed in flesh so that Satan would think, this is it, I can kill God. I can really own the earth now i've got him stupid fool he became flesh i'm going to kill him and he's lured by that to in gregory of Nyssa's terms by the flesh and blood that christ took on which was apparently vulnerable apparently open to death apparently open to being scourged apparently open to being whipped great i can do it to him like i'm doing to everybody else but inside that veil of nature was divinity. So, and thus, life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish. Now, importantly, they did not believe that evil was a substance, it was a privation. And the best metaphor is darkness and light. We all know light is real. It's mysterious, but real. But darkness is just the absence of light. It hasn't got a substance. And that's how they view death. Very interesting way to start thinking that. that Death is a privation. It's not real. Life's real. Withdraw life and I've got death, but death has no substance. And so he says, It is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or of death to exist when life is active. So Christ being the lure into the grave and then snapped up by the force. Remember what Hebrews, destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. He ate Christ, he ate life, and that's the death of death. So that was the heart of the Christus Victor model, (laughs) the ambush, the trap. Um, Clever God. Well, well, It is quite breathtaking, isn't it? So i just summarise that in my own language. Um, So in a a daring smash and grab, Jesus entered our world just as Moses slash Messiah entered the world of Egypt. He led the people out, but Pharaoh pursued him, lured on by mad jealousy and unwillingness to surrender his hold over them in just the same way. As the Son of God took on flesh, the great enemies of God were inflamed with the opportunity that they saw to pursue, quote, God and kill him. They were inflamed with their insane desire to kill and destroy, and so they pursued him to the grave. Everything was in their favour as they manipulated the death of God by their emissaries, the Romans. Just the latest in a long line of despotic regimes by which they had ravaged the earth. They were at the brink of capturing and crushing God as they poured after him into Hades. But that's where they died and the ownership. Um, papers, the ownership st- structures by which Pharaoh owned us were destroyed with them. So that's the model of the um, which we see prefigured in the Red Sea. That's not the end of the story, as we know, because th- now we've got to go into the desert and the revelation of God and that you extend the story. The narrative of the Exodus gets extended out, I think, both prior to Egypt, but afterwards as well. Um, But uh, I think you can see that um, model, that whole model, metaphorical system of salvation is extremely different. Um, Now, um, I want to just finish just by a quick uh, retouch on Habakkuk chapter three and some interesting bits of it. If we've got another five minutes of... (laughs) um, possibly to absorb this. I won't go into this again in detail, but with that Christus victor model, it's very interesting to read it. Now, what you'll begin to notice, which is why I alluded to this um, earlier, there is an interesting mixture of creational imagery with Exodus imagery. They seem to be... And, and that... Is normally seen to be at odds with one another. Um, creation is good, positive. Then comes the fall. Then you know. Then comes the solution. So it, in, in what's called the salvation history narrative, it's things. But, but this is not being seen that way because creation is somehow the same as what's going on in the Exodus. Somehow, of course, if you start to see. The Exodus as new creation, well, that begins to be the key to lock them together. Um, so we looked at the fact that those verses in three and four introduce creational imagery. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flash from his hand. This is a picture of enormous power Of a different category and class to military power it's the source of energy like the sun Um, make it a bit bigger yeah i'd love to make it bigger i don't know what to do with this because the slide um just can't sorry technology's beating me sorry um although i'm reading that correctly i've just read verses three and four um then we get into the plagues, uh, allusions to the plagues. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. So this idea of a contest with plagues, um, the contest here is, is interesting, It's the metaphors no longer allude to typical military conquest. He's had in chapters 1 and 2, he's had those metaphors of chariots and horses and beasts. They're all gone. We're back now with metaphors of a class of power way above that. I mean, if if rays of light shine from my hand, then uh, sorry, it doesn't matter what horse you're riding. (laughs) This is no contest. Um, So So the the allusion to pestilence and plague following at his heels is allusion to the contest. But then this incredibly interesting verse, which is where George Atherton makes the point. This is now cosmic. He stood and measured the earth. I just love that phrase. God stood and measured. He's evaluating the whole cosmic system. He looked and shook the nations... Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and his were the everlasting ways. So it's as if, not so much the enemies, but the, I suppose it is the enemies of God in a way, the antagonists is almost the volcanic forces of nature that are disorderly. Um, are, he's stronger than them, and they're, they're his adversaries. The, the verse I wanted to look at just in, in in closing was verse eight now a lot of people talk about i think in the penal substitution model one of the big issues is the wrath of god i can remember when when i was talking on cosmic redemption and someone came up to me and said well it's all very well to talk about the love of god but what about the wrath of god which is sort of a depressing question like i mean equalizing love and wrath and but let's say we have to confront this issue this verse I think is a little nugget it's a question was your wrath against the rivers O Lord or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation that verse says God is angry at what death He's angry at the rivers. He's angry at the chaos that has been inflicted on his people. So that's what the question says. Was your wrath against the rivers, O oh Lord? So in this moment of the Reed Sea, when the rivers, you know, um, engulfed the Egyptians, God's anger was against this convulsive system of chaos and disorder. When he rode on his chariot of salvation. And I think that's a beautiful um, nugget that really, insofar as one does talk about the wrath of God, orients the wrath of God against the enemies of death and corruption that hold um, Israel and us in in bondage. Um, And he hates that with vast anger such that he has utterly obliterated it in the grave and the resurrection. So that's um, yeah, that's the journey uh, that I think this other metaphor takes us on. And uh, as I say, it's alluded to, we all know regularly in the Old Testament, but I think Habakkuk 3 is one of the metaphysical high points of this illusion. Uh, uh, And and then um, where to with this um, next? Well, um, I thought this particular issue, it could be worth another talk if you're up for it, on how does creation imagery and redemption imagery fit together? Because normally they're seen as separate. They're not just seen as separate as metaphors, but this is really the battle between, apparent battle, between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Eastern Church has focused on creation and resurrection. Western Church has focused on redemption and sin. Now I'm not making this up. I mean, um, I've bought uh, Bukhakov's spiritual diaries. It's okay, Bukhakov, Um, and uh, moments where I think the bank count it's going well I buy books and when it doesn't I go into a period of abstinence. (laughs) 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 We've just built new bookcases so I've got to fill. (laughs) Um, I was stunned reading uh, the introduction which was about um, who it was a great Russian theologian um, from the 20th century who David Bentley Hart says is his favorite theologian of the 20th century with the highest Christology. Um, And Bulgakov's the guy who's, that quote I mentioned about, uh, often mentioned that uh, the question that slithers across the face of the earth like a serpent who will govern the earth. And um, in the introduction, uh, they talk about the controversy Controversy surrounding him, and the controversy is just this diagram, which is uh, he overfocused on the let 's just call it the positive side, made in the image of God, the creation, the good stuff, but what about sin and redemption? Um, he, he was criticized by some fellow theologians for downplaying sin and redemption, and then, to my surprise um, uh, John Beer um, talked about exactly the same controversy over Athanasius, um, who was focusing on, you know, the creation and the good side. And so he he quoted in one of his lectures on Athanasius, who of course was seminal in the creation of the Nicene Creed and his book on the Incarnation, a series of lectures, but he, he quoted a very serious scholar of Athanasius, who said, well look, essentially Athanasius was great on creation, but what about the cross? You know, it's all very good to be all positive, but what about, he he, he had a diminished picture of uh, the cross, which John Beer thought was ridiculous, and so so how these link together is something that's worth thinking about, because I think they do.